1: Coming to you tonight, the ninth day of the ninth month of 2020, from Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters COVID Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University, as we hope to do again someday, but instead uh, coming to you from home, where I'm working and where I am getting paid by ECU during the day, but not representing them at night when I talk to you. This is just on my own. Nothing I say here should be held against ECU or any of its uh, sub-organizations. And likewise, my guest will speak only for herself tonight, not for anyone else. (laughs) Well, it is September 9th. We're uh, more than halfway through the first block of the first semester. fall semester of 2020, the first semester being conducted entirely uh, online. Well, actually, it was not. Of course, we tried to start classes August 10th face-to-face, and that lasted just a couple weeks when the university recognized that uh, C-19 was breaking out all over and students had to leave. Uh, the football team however is still here and, and apparently is still planning to play uh, not this weekend but the next I'll keep you updated on that uh, it seems hard to believe what really seemed hard to believe though <coughs> excuse me there's uh, a message this past uh, uh, past week about the uh, uh, winter term the possibility that between the uh, End of fall term, which will end early in November, and the next winter term, the little spring term, will start late in January. They've proposed having additional classes, and now I'm looking at my notes, thinking, "Did I tell you all about this last week?" And I'm repeating myself. It's so good, I'll do it anyway. If I if I did, uh, the idea is a great one. When you have time off between semesters and there's a long break. As there is at some northern schools where it's too cold to go outdoors for a month or so, then why not have a short four week or six week term? And if you give faculty the opportunity to design new courses, because no one has a six week course in hand at ECU, we don't have terms that long, you know, spend uh, the summer preparing it, have a competitive process, and get a grant and whatever, and come up with new courses, that'd be great. But this time they're saying, we're going to do it this fall. Zero time to prepare. Make up a course apparently as you go uh, with no oversight going in. No, it, it's it's just bizarre. Uh, the idea that, that an entire university level course can be designed on the fly without having to do any preparation or research. I'm not planning to offer one. Uh, I'm, I'm and I had a discussion this evening uh, with my wife, who's teaching 8th and 10th grade and coming home exhausted. They're making her do it face, face-to-face. I'm sorry, 10th and 12th grade, uh, face-to-face. And that is really uh, grueling compared to what I do. But she said, you know, you don't have to prepare these long, carefully illustrated lectures. Why not just kind of cut some corners in one of your classes. And my answer was, I I, I could do that face-to-face. I could come in and be not fully prepared for a class in theory, and students might comment on it. Uh, If you let them go early, well, you know, education is the one industry where the customers demand to be shortchanged. So let them go without getting their full lesson, and they're thrilled. But now we're teaching online, so everything I post goes up... uh, into a learning system that's not accessible to the world, but students are smart, and if I did a really terrible, laughable lecture, it would end up going viral, or some bit of it where I said something foolish, uh, and it would be up there forever. It's the difference between this show and a Civil War roundtable appearance. You could go to a roundtable and talk to people about your topic and not really know what you're going to say and not do a great job and it would be embarrassing and the people there would be annoyed at you justly and that would mostly be the end of it they might make a note don't invite him for future meetings but whereas i might theoretically imagine doing that here on civil war talk radio if i haven't read the book that we're going to discuss in the evening there's an hour to fill talking to an author who wonders why you don't know what you're talking about Uh, and all of you listening, all of Broom can access the book too if you want, would know and it would stay up forever. So I just can't do that. I just can't bring myself to do a completely poor job of online lecturing and the result is I'm getting further and further behind uh, but hopefully uh, still giving the students their money's worth. At least that's the idea. One of my colleagues who always gave students their money's worth, and I've mentioned this in the last two shows, uh, my friend and uh, sadly late colleague, uh, Wade Dudley. Professor Dudley taught at ECU for many years. Uh, he wrote, he was published on the, the British blockade of the U.S. during the War of 1812, plus many, many articles and book reviews. He was a wonderful instructor and really the kind of person where the rest of us wish we had the stamina and energy to do what he did that makes his students so respectful and grateful for his effort. We are now raising money for a, uh, scholarship in Wade's name. And I want to thank all of you who have donated to that in the past week. If you donate, if you go to www.impedimentsofwar, that's the Civil War Talk Radio website, and click on the donation button, I will take the donations we're getting this month and put them aside, not use them for my own selfish purposes, but donate them to Dudley Scholarship Fund and I will match them of course with my own funds once we get all all the numbers in so if you have donated, thank you so much and if you haven't uh, especially if you've listened to more than a few episodes and haven't gotten around to clicking the donation button, this is the time to do it Uh, it will help students, it will recognize a great teaching professor, so please consider uh, putting a few dollars in to uh, Impedimentsofwar.org, and the, those funds will go this month to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund. While you're at Impediments of War, you can see who's going to be on the show next. Next week, Niels Eichhorn will be joining us, young scholar with a book called Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. Then on the 23rd, not as young, more like my age, Mark Dunkleman comes back to the show. His book is a reissue of his work on Amos Humiston, the the, the soldier killed at Gettysburg, and known only by the photograph he held in his hands as he died. But Mark also does a lot of other things, uh, painted a mural at Gettysburg, if you've ever been there. Well, we'll talk about it when he's on. He's done a lot, uh, always fun to talk with him. No live show on September 30th. It's the end of Block 1 here at ECU, and I will be grading final exams, so you wouldn't want to hear from me that night. And then on October 7th, uh, just in, Gary Gallagher, known to everyone. We'll be back. Uh, Always fun to have him on the show. And he has a brand new book called The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. So lots coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight, we are talking with one of the two co-authors of a book called Carrying the Colors, The Life and Legacy medal of honor recipient andrew jackson smith it's written by w robert beckman and sharon s mcdonald with andrew s bowman and esther l bowman we'll find out about them as well and uh dr sharon s mcdonald joins us tonight to talk about the book uh dr mcdonald are you there i am (laughs) welcome to the show
2: well thank you i'm pleased to be on
1: well, it, it is uh, a pleasure to have you here and to uh, talk with you about this book. But let me first say, uh, welcome back, at least uh, welcome your voice back to Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, you mentioned by email that uh, you know this place.
2: Yes, very well. Not recently, but uh, uh, I knew it very well before when Five Points still existed. <laughs> before. Okay yeah that was were, i'm not sure if when you came to greenville uh if five points was still there or not but uh uh anyway i'm uh you know quite familiar with the town and I was back ten years ago and um I hope to return in a couple of years and do a little family research uh, a little family history there and uh then wander around North Carolina with uh, Hampton Newsom's uh Book on the war in the old North State, and look at uh, and just learn about the war in, in in Eastern North Carolina. That when I lived there, I was just too young to appreciate. Um,
1: well, it, it's uh, five points predates my time. I got here in early two thousands, but you're mm. absolutely right about the the sites in Eastern North Carolina. It took me a few years living here to realize how much is here. And Hampton Newsom's book is just great. He was on the show. Uh, when the book came out, and uh, it was great hearing from it's him. Great. It's got
2: a great title too. I love the title, so it's uh, yes, uh, uh, war for the Old. So North it's going to be my tour guide to uh, the war in North Carolina in a few
1: years. <laughs> okay. Now, you and another tangential link. You taught at uh, was it Northern? No, uh, I'm saying the wrong place. You taught at uh, Illinois State University. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and I. When I came to ECU, our department chair Roger Biles was just leaving.
2: Oh yes, he came. He was he he came the the year that I retired. He came and uh, and was the chair here. It was a, uh, just a fantastic chair. I'm really sorry I retired as early as I did. I think I would have uh, really enjoyed uh, working under him. But he uh, he's uh,
1: much appreciated. Well, that's good to hear. I only got—I overlapped with him for one year here at ECU and got to know him a little bit, and he—he he seemed like a great guy. So, uh, you've been retired from teaching. Uh, what what keeps you busy during the day when not writing uh, about Andrew Jackson Smith?
2: More writing, more researching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's. Um, I just can't seem to stop working, and so, so the, uh, writing is for, for me is teaching by another means, and, uh, and I'm enjoying it. It's, it's work, but uh, I'm enjoying mm-hmm. it. And Ro- Rob and I will have another book coming out in a year or so. Um, um, uh, we all of the all of the great stories we couldn't include in this book about the war in the Department of the South are going to put in another book.
1: And uh, and bring out so uh, uh, that keeps us busy. Well, let let me ask about the the, uh, the process of writing this book. The uh, the story of Andrew Jackson Smith, uh, you know, features the the campaign in South Carolina features prominently in it. But the thing that really struck me about it, from a professional point of view, is what a challenge it must be. It's hard enough to write about. People who were enslaved and not taught to read and write because they leave so many fewer records. But not only that, the place where he grew up, the, the land uh, between the rivers in, uh, the, where in Kentucky and Tennessee, the, the Cumberland and, and Tennessee rivers were, were dammed during the, the Tennessee Valley Authority years. And all that was turned into lakes. And so even the land where he lived is no longer accessible. How how did Uh, you most
2: of it? Yeah, most of it is not. We were able to go to his first home, which is on high ground, but most of most of his land is is, uh, under the Cumberland River right now. Um. Yeah, it's uh, and worse than that was the flooding. Uh, And takes the flood of nineteen
1: thirty-seven,
2: which the land the land between the rivers. well it says in the Tennessee on the west, the Cumberland on the east, but to the north is the Ohio. Mm-hmm. And that area uh that area was just I mean, the floodwaters were unbelievably high uh, and destroyed a lot of uh, the newspaper records were just about wiped out. The mm. I, I was talking to one newspaper owner who had just searched and searched and searched and, and she just couldn't come up uh, you know uh, with the uh, Within a uh, substantial number of newspapers, the public records. A lot of them were lost, but uh, the you know the, the county clerks and such really did their job, uh, especially in in uh, Lyon County, uh, salvaging as many of those uh, records as they could, and some of the for the tax assessments, which were so important uh, to reconstruct Andy Smith's life, in, in Kentucky. Because they reveal a tremendous amount of information, and some of the on the microfilm, and you can see water damage uh, mm-hmm. on the microfilm, and some pages are missing, or it's really hard to read because of you know the, the lines from where the water stopped and they left a, left a mark,
1: and then in some years just didn't survive at all. Well, that's really a remarkable set of challenges then trying to find the story of this person. But it's a remarkable story, and we need to talk about Smith himself, which we'll do when we come back. We're going to take a short break. We're talking tonight with Sharon S. McDonald, co-author of Carrying the Colors, the Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
3: (laughs) stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain
0: inspiring really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
3: For Outside the Huddle, on the Voice America Sports Channel.
4: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Access all the time.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Dr. Sharon S. McDonald. She is the co-author, along with W. Robert Beckman, of Carrying the Colors, the Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. Now, Smith, uh, or as you refer to him often as Andy in the book because you say that is a family preference. Uh, Andy, if I may, was, was born... Uh, in 1842, to, as the, the son of the person who was also uh, his slave owner, the, that, that didn't make things any easier. I mean, There were so many things about the institution of slavery that are hard to get one's mind around, uh, and that's certainly one of them. How, how, what do we know anything about his early life uh, living under that condition?
2: Yes. Well, his uh, his father, uh, so first uh, his father's wife uh, uh, had died, and his two first his two uh, white sons uh, had grown and left home, and his father, uh, well, shall we say, had relations with Andy Smith's mother and another one of the slave women. Whom he apparently, there's some evidence that, that he really cared for these women, and provided for them in his will. They, uh, with instructions about how they would be taken care of. But and Andy talked about uh, uh, his fam uh, that uh, that he and his three sisters. We don't know if they were if full sisters or half sisters, uh, and they're and uh, his mother Susan and Hillary the other uh, uh, the other slave woman and and he said and Sandy said is that the old man now, that was his immediate family growing up the most important thing though is that the smith family was quite large his uh uh Elias smith's brother had about uh, i'm trying to remember maybe nine or more children some of whom mm-hmm. Became very good friends uh, with Andy Smith, and he played with his cousins. And those friendships lasted in, into adulthood, and were very uh, important in Andy Smith's later life. Because one of them, in particular, helped uh, fund Andy Smith's land purchases. And and, and without without access to credit, uh, I don't know that Andy Smith could have accomplished what he did. In fact, his his story shows the difference. It, uh, something like that can make, just being able to have access to credit, to be able to get a loan, to build your business, it makes a tremendous difference. So Andy, and, and so, and, you know, it just goes to, you know, you go into what if history. What if lots of slaves had access, uh, former slaves, freedmen, had access to credit? How different life could have been? And then when Andy Smith builds up his, I don't know, uh, his income and, uh and especially when he goes, moves to Grand Rivers, he's employ, employing lots of people. Both black people and white people work for him. Which is he, a lot of people... Yeah, I mean, hmm. so you can see a, the economic difference he can make with just a little a little uh, financial support.
1: Yeah, the, the, the legendary 40 acres and a mule never actually happened. And so you have uh, the... The whole society of people without that economic boost and those few who are fortunate like Smith who who knows someone and who, who seems to show an ability through his career to, to straddle racial lines, to communicate and earn the respect of uh, white people in authority positions and at the same time maintain a standing in the black community. It's a very interesting case. Uh, he doesn't stay... Uh, it, the, the Civil War is obviously pivotal in his life story. I thought it was interesting that that's why he leaves slavery in the first place. Uh, when when there's a levy on, on slaves in the neighborhood to go help build Fort Donaldson, and he doesn't want any part of that. Uh, so where can yeah. he go from there?
2: Well, he... Uh, I think he's... He had, well, he was familiar with uh, the uh, the Cumberland River, at least from stories from uh, others around him, and he knew where it flowed and how far it was away from the uh, the Ohio, in Smithland, and and they knew that there were Union troops at Smithland, so when when his. Uh, Owner came home, his owner now, his, his father died and his half-brother was his owner. So his half-brother's coming back to take him down to Donaldson. And uh, he and uh, Andy Smith and one other slave find this out, and they literally, uh, uh, in just a matter of minutes, uh, uh, jump over the fence and get run into the woods and start running and don't stop until they work their way up to uh, uh, Smithland. And the one place they had to go was the Union Army, and they had now, no idea how difficult yeah. that might have been. I could—they could have very well have been turned back.
1: Well, that's what I was going to say. The Union Army is not yet uh, in 1861 or early 1862. It's not necessarily a place of refuge. The the uh, contraband policy is not in effect yet, and certainly the Emancipation Proclamation hasn't come along yet. So, I it. it it seems he was pretty fortunate in the regiment that he happened to run into. Oh, yes. Very fortunate,
2: because uh, and, and other, so, some troops in that regiment had actually uh, returned some uh, uh, um, uh, to their owners.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And fortunately, he ran into the right people, and that just made all the difference in the
1: world. So he ends up connected with I think it's the forty first Illinois yeah. and uh he gets to see a little bit of the war from that position. He he
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, in fact it's uh sort of one of the ironic things. He runs he escapes from slavery, he runs away from home to keep from being taken to Fort Donaldson. Then he uh gets with uh, gets in with uh, the forty uh, first uh Illinois and He's, he and his uh, the other uh, escaped slave, Alf Bissell, Andy and Alf get uh, get him are employed by officers in the uh, in the regiment, in which in in effect gives him uh, really protection and sanctuary. And then the fort so the forty first ends up going to Donaldson and, and uh, they fight in Fort Henry, fighting Fort Donaldson, go on to Shiloh. So he goes to Donaldson after all, only he's with <laughs> he's with the Union troops.
1: He's he's on the right side there for uh, for for his purposes, and as you say, he sees the Battle of Shiloh. The officer that he's working for ends up sending him back to uh, to Clinton, Illinois. What? And I, I've done some reading and writing about Abraham Lincoln. And my understanding of the southern and central Illinois in the 1850s and 60s is it's not really a great place to be an African-American, whether free or refugee or enslaved.
2: Well, especially in southern Illinois, in western Illinois, it's not it, you never, It's not a good place. Central Illinois is a little different. Okay. I think Clinton... Uh, uh, Clinton and, and up here in McLean County in the Bloomington area, uh, there were a number of people, a number of Republicans who were anti-slavery. Court wasn't perfect, but uh, you could get protection here. And in Clinton, there was a uh, uh, well. There, there were a lot of copperheads around, but uh, John Warner's family was sufficiently. Um, well off and prominent in the community that, that nobody was going to mess with them, so uh he so uh Andy could uh, come up and to Clinton and receive the protection of the family and basically be left alone and and in the uh, you're good, but if he was twenty miles further south, down to say towards Decatur, things would be getting a little rougher
1: you I was familiar with the Illinois constitutional provision uh you know trying to limit black settlement in the state but I didn't realize till reading your book that they had passed another law during the war that made it difficult or impossible for African Americans right. to move into Illinois Oh, well, it was illegal so so he he was lucky to have a powerful patron to uh to keep him from from being sent to, back to Kentucky
2: very lucky very fortunate uh you know, it just worked out that uh, uh, John Warner was com- uh, was commanding. He was a major at the time, and he was commanding the con- the, con- the contingent of Union troops at Smithland, and and uh, Andy Smith and Alf Bissell just walked right in, you know, <laughs> right into his command,
1: and and he took care of him. Now, the uh, Andy Smith spends some time in Clinton, Illinois, but. At some point, he decides to do his bit in the war and goes to enlist in the first nationally known black regiment, the one uh, everyone listening to the show knows. We've all seen the movie Glory. We've all heard of the 54th Massachusetts. So uh, Andrew Jackson Smith is going to go join the 54th, uh, but he ends up in the 55th. What happened there? Well,
2: he he arrives in camp. And the fifty fourth is full, but there, but so many but so many uh, uh, recruits are coming in. Massachusetts decides to to, to uh, field a second uh, regiment, and he, he's one of
1: the very first to enlist
2: in the uh,
1: in the fifty fifth. So what uh, what's that like? The uh, um, I, I get the impression reading this book that you had to really tease out information from fairly scarce records describing his his first months in the 55th Regiment.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't hard... It, it wasn't that hard to find information uh, on, on that particular... Uh, um, on, on the uh, time he's in, 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 uh, in camp, but uh, there's just not a lot of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The But he... Uh, you know it it's not that much different from from what uh, from what every regiment goes through uh, in training and um they uh they weren't there that long um uh just over a month as i recall and um uh, and so they basically it's uh you know it's the routine up in the morning fatigue duty dress you know eat fast, get uh, 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 drilled, uh, dress parade, uh, you know, and drop into bed just exhausted at night. Um, So, so, yeah, I think it was probably typical of of what most uh, Union soldiers went through.
1: Now, the regiment ends up going down, (coughs) excuse me, they they travel the East Coast, they end up uh, uh, in, in Newbern briefly, in North Carolina, in South Carolina, uh, Florida, back to South Carolina. It, while they're always sort of a step behind the, the immediate action, at one point, the uh, there's that dramatic scene again in the movie Glory where the troops are not getting paid the same as white troops for doing the same service, and the 55th suffers that. And uh, I... I found it interesting that they, they ended up agreeing to, Congress agrees that the troops will get their back pay, they'll be paid equally if they were free. But if they were enslaved, that would be different. And of course, for, for Andrew Jackson Smith, he's an escaped slave from a loyal state of Kentucky. So in theory, he's not touched by the Emancipation Proclamation. He, in theory, could be sent back. Uh, how do they figure out a way for the slaves, for the, for the former slaves to, uh, uh, to to get their, their back pay without having to admit they used to be slaves?
2: Well, except for a very few who wouldn't agree to it. Of course, they take the famous Quakeros. But uh, um, the,
1: uh, the what, very few. That, 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 that's what grabbed yeah, me the Quakeros. It, Could you. No, t- oh, go ahead. Well, I mean, but
2: the. Uh, uh, but what. Uh, but, but people like Andy Smith just had to claim they were free. Mm-hmm. And 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 he and, and for him he enlisted from Clinton. So he it looks it, so he's you know so he can swear that he declares that he's free and 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 he's uh, you know uh, uh, you know a free black from Clinton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the uh and and that was his story
1: and he was sticking by it. You you, you do what you have to do, certainly, in that circumstance. I I was just enchanted by the, the Quaker oath idea that they would swear I owed no one unrequited labor in 1861, which even if you were held in slavery, it's still true. You don't really owe it to them in a moral sense. You've just been captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so even yeah. the slaves could take that oath. That was a, a yeah. clever bit. Yeah, that,
2: that was very really nice. Both free, and, yeah, both free and slaves could do it, yes.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so they end up going as a regiment down to uh, James Island. The, there is uh, a moment when they have to drive a, a small Confederate detachment that's guarding a causeway and they charge across the causeway, capture two uh, 12-pound Napoleons in the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they have a little bit of action, but it's not until uh, November 1864 when they really are going to be engaged in heavy fighting. We're going to take another short break. We'll pick up our story at the Battle of Honey Hill uh, in 1864. When we return, talking with... Dr. Sharon S. McDonald, the author or co-author of Carrying the Colors, the Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Sharon S. McDonald, co-author of Carrying the Colors, the Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. So, uh, Sharon, on the, on the James Island engagement, the 55th has men dash across a causeway and take out two Confederate cannon, but at Honey Hill there are six Confederate cannon at the end of a narrow... Pass. Uh, th- this is this is what this is where it happens. Tell us about the action here.
2: The oh geez, where to begin? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> the uh, the uh, the Union column. They don't send out the cavalry like they should to scout, and so they're mm-hmm. they're going. The, the, I don't say they the commander and the hatch did not he kept the cavalry close you know for protection, so then they're going up the road the column is going up the road goes enters woods and they, there's a sharp turn in the woods you come around the turn, and all of a sudden you're looking right down the muzzles of of, of the cannon in in a in a massive uh, battery and a very long very long uh, Defensive line at, the, at about 20 feet uh, uh, high. And so, and they just open up on the front of the column. And the uh, the Union line, these regiments fall back and then they uh, move from the road, uh, either side of the road, to form a line and start moving through the woods. Uh, Andy Smith is with the. Uh, uh, is with uh, Hartwell, that's the uh, commander, the 55th commander, and he's commanding supposedly the 2nd Brigade, which was originally supposed to be four regiments, and and for various reasons, he's now commanding, uh, at this point, uh, something like eight companies. So the strength of the the brigade has been considerably reduced. Uh, They worked their way up towards the front. They get conflicting orders and the uh uh he's uh Hartwell loses two more companies and so and and then by the by the time they are ordered to it uh, for this attack, Hartwell is down to five companies, five hundred men maybe. At the most. I mean that's so he's uh what what he's supposed to, what the 55th is supposed to do is go around this turn in the road, cross a causeway, and run up a hill a uh, distance of less than a hundred yards. And I might add, there's a uh, you'll often see it, figures of a longer distance. like 150 yards. That's not correct. The, this information got into the got into a number of sources. But anyway, it's less than 100 yards, about 90, probably 93, 95 yards. And and so they're supposed to uh, come across and just launch in column with uh, a frontal assault against a a battery, which is senseless. Well, the real reason that they're supposed to do this is to draw fire so that a New York regiment can supposedly sneak up uh, uh, on the flank and, and take the battery that way. It's uh, it's never approved at the top. Uh, the uh, two uh, uh, it, uh, Hatch never approves it, and the uh, second the second in command approves it, and it's really uh, it's a disaster. I mean, it was not a, it was not an assault designed to do anything but draw fire. I mean, it was a suicide charge
1: so let's the, talk about uh Andy Smith, what does he do in this charge
2: well he's he's but now he's in the color guard he is a corporal in the color guard and the 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 first charge the as you go around the turn the cannon uh, the cannons fire and it in the and the fire falls in the sort of the middle of the column, and the whole column has to fall back. So that for the next charge, Hartwell, the commander, and I'm going to say, Hartwell was well-intentioned. He really cared about his, his men, but he didn't know anything about, about fighting a battle. He just never had any, any experience. So, so he's, he doesn't know to say to refuse to attack. You know, so he's going to try again. And he, and he moves the color guard to the front. So Andy Smith and the two uh, color bearers and one of the color sergeant uh, color corporal form the front uh, the front rank and Hartwell yell yells, follow your colors, my men, and so they off they go and the the uh, fire from the, the the cannons as they come around you know, come around that turn anyway goes back hits further back of the column, and the front of the column keeps going and so the, the everybody that survives that that, that first uh first uh, round of cannon fire is, is moving up the hill and they move and while they uh they're firing canister and while they're reloading uh the front rank gets closer and closer uh to uh the front and they and we figured figured out this is some evidence from the confederate source they got within 20 yards of the muzzles of those cannon.
3: Mm.
2: At that point, the, uh, the cannons fire, a round of canister, they're so close, the round of canister that comes out hits the color sergeant in the chest, even if it doesn't have chance to expand to release the balls or anything else. That's how close they were. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, and so uh, the uh, sergeant king is killed, Andy Smith grabs the flag from, from uh, he says, he grabbed King with one hand and the flag with the other, uh, picks up the flag, he's ordered to, you know, retreat to bring his regiment off the field, and so he's, and the colors, he starts to, uh, uh, he and in the, in the in the, uh, this, the the corporal carrying the, the uh, regimental colors, uh, the state flag, uh you know, come together, and, and Smith sees that he's that the corporal has got the uh, an arm broken. He's been hitting the arm. And so Smith takes both flags, both, you know, both of the regiment's mm-hmm. flags, and gets with, you know, he gets, I guess, with the probably some of the other color corporals and starts backing off the field, bringing, guiding the regiment off that field. And he doesn't get a scratch. He comes through that it's unbelievable but he uh, probably because they're they're backing downhill and i think the confederate especially the confederate uh rifle fires probably they're probably firing high high nice. anyway they uh uh he, he he backs them off the field and the the uh and then they go back behind the uh uh behind the turn in the road in the creek and basically wait out the uh, the rest of the battle uh okay. One interesting thing about this battle, if yeah. anybody wants to study, it's a great battle in microcosm uh, mm. for the study in the Civil War. Um, but I won't go into that now, but it's, a, it's an interesting little battle that uh, a lot can be learned from. So I just recommend that people want to learn about it. Uh, it would be a good one to,
1: <laughs> a good one to study. And that, I will say, if you're interested in tactical details, listeners, uh, the maps in this book do an excellent job. Uh, making these things very clear, where the road is, what the unit you know, frontages are, exactly what's going on. So uh, I'd highly recommend it from a, a tactical reader's point of view. Now this act of rescuing not only the national colors, but also the regimental colors, maintaining its composure and helping bring wounded and bring the guide the whole regiment off the field, ends up uh, many years later, and we just have a, a minute or two left, uh, it, it ends up with the man who'd been the regimental surgeon recommending uh, recommending him for a Congressional Medal of Honor in the early twentieth century, which is denied uh, not every recommendation gets through. But many years later, and you tell the story wonderfully in the book, uh, the descendants of Andy Smith, his uh, daughters, he after the war he Marries, wife dies, remarries when he's much older, a woman who is much younger, and thus he has children uh, in the, the 20th century. and they end up learning about him and seeking to see if it can't if this negative decision on the recommendation for the medal can't be overturned. What, you got involved in the story at this point. It, that, that you're, you're very modest about it in the book. But it seems like you played some role as well in in bringing this story well, to light.
2: Well, uh, very very quickly, uh, we owe a debt to the Civil War roundtables, especially mm-hmm. uh, Springfield, Illinois, and Indianapolis, that provided the networking that connected us ultimately to Andy Bowman and his family, but uh, his his daughter Karuth. Uh, received documents mm-hmm. at, uh, at, at Andy's funerals as sort of her inheritance. Uh, she puts them in a safe place. In retirement, she comes back and starts reading them and trying to write a history of her father. And the uh, they don't know about... It's not to get the medal, it's just to get more information on him. But one mm-hmm. thing leads to another. Andy Bowman, her nephew, gets involved, and Andy becomes a real champion for uh, for his grandfather. And... And, and Andy discovers that the, the the evidence had been suppressed. He did an incredible job of, of research. And anyway, the uh, and so first we had they had to find that the government had suppressed the evidence. We found the evidence, and then Andy had had a hard time trying to get anybody to listen to him. And um, and it and, uh, and I and nobody did. Uh, until we, uh, well, he, 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 got us, uh, involved and we were able to go to, uh, uh, a represent, Tom Tom Ewing, the representative for Clinton and, uh, and then, uh, Dick Durbin, the Senator. So one Republican, one Democrat got involved and helped get this information to the army, get it through and, and get it moved through the process and, and, uh, get, uh, uh, and, and, and for Smith to get his award. Now, and by the way, when it went to the Army, it, it went through the early process of it and got approved by the High Army Board like the proverbial you know hot knife through butter. We had a, <laughs> a clear cut case. Clear cut case. But, mm-hmm. but there was all sorts of other problems. and Political in politics and such got in the way, delayed, uh, delayed getting the award. But it... Uh, uh, yeah, but I guess that's well. That's that's a very quick story. <laughs> you
1: don't have well. That, that's it, it's a it's such an interesting story to read as you point out the uh, the clerks in the uh, 1919 era when they got the first recommendation uh, operating in a time when the federal government is is under the influence of Woodrow Wilson. It's highly segregated, and a clerk says we gets the application and writes within an hour, oh, we've done an exhaustive study of all the federal documents and can find nothing uh, literally the same day. That's not an exhaustive stu- That's not a study at all. Uh, we didn't bother looking for the evidence that that uh, Smith had, in fact, been promoted for heroism for what he did at Honey Hill. and uh, But then the descendants do this incredible legwork and incredible historical detective work and find the documents that have been ignore it all those years and bring them forward. And as you say, at at the end, even though we know the answer from the very title of the book, we know he's a Medal of Honor recipient, you get this tense moment at the end. Will it happen? Will the award be given while Smith's daughters are still alive to know about it? And uh, as you say, uh, politics gets in it. We won't talk about that at this moment. Uh, But it seems like nothing is... Nothing can be sufficiently honorable and uh, you know, worthy of respect. In this case, a Medal of Honor winner, veteran hero for his country. Nothing can be so elevated that you can't find a way for partisan politics to drag it down and make it harder than it has to be. And uh, that certainly seems to have happened here. But, but what a great story. And, and in the end, uh, in 2001, uh, the Medal of Honor was, was awarded. So that must have been a great day for you. Oh, it was. It
2: was, it was an, it, it yeah. Uh, Rob and I got to go to the ceremony, and you know, it, it was it was really special. And the uh, and of course what, the, the last chapter we we're writing is you know we were there and then recording what we saw. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it was it uh, it was a special book to write. It really was.
1: And, well, it, it it go ahead.
2: I was going to say and, and one of the things uh, we don't get preachy in the book we lay we, you know we just lay out the facts and people get to, to interpret and take from it what they will but we sure well i think what uh, you know Bob and I both looked at one another and what we agreed on is what we felt that we got from the book is we're stronger together
1: that that's certainly uh uh certainly a message that comes through here that this um uh it, it, it it is a, a special book in the, in the in the way that it has historians engaged and involved in both the research you and your your co-author did and the uh, the writing that you do and it elevates what's already a fascinating and inspiring story into something really you know quite special so listeners if you want to oh read a remarkable story uh, of Andrew Jackson Smith. The book is called Carrying the Colors, The Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. Uh, the co-authors W. Robert Beckman and Sharon S. McDonald. And Sharon, it has been a real pleasure talking with you about this book tonight. Well,
2: thank you for having me. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate being able to talk with you after listening to you all these years,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed reading it. and I look forward to your next book. Uh, listeners, you'll enjoy this book as well. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.